There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with Vladimir Putin's barbaric war of choice in Ukraine. While his ground forces have been slowed to a crawl, Putin continues his terror campaign against Ukraine's civilian population, pulverizing residential infrastructure with missile strikes again today. His latest target was a nine-story high-rise apartment building in the capital city of Kyiv, where Russian forces struck just after 5 a.m., catching most residents still asleep. It comes as a fourth round of talks between Russia and Ukraine yielded little more than an agreement to keep the diplomatic channels open. While a path to peace remains elusive, Putin, in desperation, is now widening the war, expanding his list of targets and striking further into western Ukraine. Yesterday, a barrage of more than 30 Russian missiles struck a military base, killing 35 people outside the city of Lviv in the west, less than 15 miles from the border of Poland. Its close proximity to a NATO ally raises the very real possibility that Russia could draw Western powers into the war. President Zelensky issued an ominous warning about that prospect yesterday, saying it's only a matter of time before the conflict spills outside Ukraine's borders. The Ukrainian president also visited wounded soldiers at the hospital Sunday, awarding medals and taking selfies to boost morale. Separately, we learned yesterday that the first American known to have died in the war was journalist Brent Renaud, who was on assignment for Time magazine when he was shot and killed in the Kiev suburb of Irpin. This comes as foreign journalists flee en masse from Russia itself, unable to operate under the Kremlin's draconian new law that effectively bans the expression of any opposing views. In fact, a new video released by an activist group in Moscow appears to show the brutal efficiency of Putin's crackdown on dissent. The Orwellian scene shows police arresting an interview subject in Red Square at the very second she expresses her opinion. Later in that video, it appears another interview subject was arrested before she even expressed any opinion at all. Meanwhile, the humanitarian crisis is deepening across Ukraine, including in Mariupol, where Russian forces have been indiscriminately striking residential apartments and other non-military targets. Many were finally able to flee from that city along evacuation routes today. But according to the city council, those who remain are running out of their last reserves of food and water. The New York Times reports that the only thing that draws people from their basements and bomb shelters, aside from scrounging for food, is the daily hope that they will be able to be evacuated. Nearly 2,200 people have died in Mariupol since the start of the war, according to government officials. And we now know that number includes pregnant woman, the pregnant woman and her baby, whose tragic story captivated the world. Those devastating images last week captured her fight for survival after Russian forces needlessly and mercilessly bombed a maternity ward. Now, gut-wrenching new reporting today portrays a scene of desperation and distress as doctors labored to keep her alive. Quote, realizing she was losing her baby, medics said she cried out to them, kill me now. 
As painful as that is to hear, that is the reality of Putin's brutal war. And he's becoming increasingly mired as he pursues the age-old folly of regime change in Ukraine. In an ominous new sign of Russia's intentions, Russian forces have reportedly abducted at least two mayors to install pro-Russian replacements in cities under their control. In fact, Ukrainian officials have released a CCTV video alleging to show one of those mayors being escorted away by Russian troops on Friday. Yet according, yet, according to The Washington Post, Ukrainians continue to push back against their occupiers, signifying that if Russia plans to occupy Ukraine, then Ukrainians are showing that there will be significant resistance. Despite the risk to their lives, we've seen more video of Ukrainian protesters standing up to and shouting down Russian troops. Now, let's remember, this is a country that Putin thought that he could bring to heel within 48 hours. But the reality is that he hasn't met his short-term military objectives on the ground, let alone a grand strategy of replacing President Zelensky with a Russian-friendly puppet. And given Putin's request for help from China, it appears he may finally be realizing how badly his invasion is going. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Cal Perry in Lviv, Ukraine, MSNBC national security analyst Clint Watts, and Evagen Kryptopotenko. A Ukrainian chief, a Ukrainian chef, sorry, and winner of MasterChef Ukraine. And I apologize for butchering his name. Uh, Cal, I want to start with you first because, you know, early on in this war, um, being in Lviv generally meant being safe. That was the route out of town. If you look at a map of Ukraine, that is far to the west on the way, you know, to, to get out of the country. The war seems to have come your way. Absolutely. And for the more than 300,000 refugees who have settled at least temporarily um, in this city, uh, it's been a shock. You know, 48 hours ago, this city was woken up by the sound of distant explosions as eight rockets hit that airfield, killing at least 34 people, wounding another 130. And we have these consistent threats from the Russian government to take out the supply lines that are feeding the war in the east, to take out the arms shipments that are coming in that we know are coming in uh, from Poland. And so there's a there's a concern here that's growing that we're going to see more airstrikes. And the fueling of weapons to the east is vital. It's vital for the Ukrainians to carry on this war. You mentioned the city of Mariupol. There are 400,000 civilians still trapped inside that city. And as you said, the, the conditions there are deteriorating far beyond sort of what we could possibly imagine, where you have people now reportedly fighting over food, people afraid to go above ground. And it's even worse in the northern city of Kharkiv, where you don't even have the mass graves that you have in Mariupol. Mass graves are the last desperation from a city that cannot go above ground, that can't even carry out funerals. And in Kharkiv, you don't even have that. You have bodies laying in the streets, including the bodies of Russian soldiers that have gone unclaimed. In the capital, you have this slow tightening, this slow tightening and strangulation of the city, and again, indiscriminate shelling of these residential areas. So as the battle space lays out, you can now sort of look at it as a two-front war. You have the ground campaign that is, again, slowly moving into these urban areas, and then you have this aerial campaign that has now been widened and brings in the question what will NATO do if these convoys, if these armed shipments are continued to be targeted? What will NATO's response be? And of course, this close to the border in a situation where you already have two and a half million refugees have fled the country. There are at least that many people internally displaced. We heard today from the mayor of Krakow saying that Krakow is now full, that they've seen an increase of population of 15%. Um, so the humanitarian situation is now sort of off a cliff, and you have these horrendous, horrendous uh, stories coming out of the eastern part of the country where it doesn't look like the sieges are going to lift anytime soon, Joy. 
Wow. Uh, let me bring you in, Clint, um, Clinton Watts, to talk about this, because it does appear that the, the goal at this point just seems to be to crush and strangle and pulverize Ukraine from all sides. Um, that doesn't sound like a military strategy or a strategy to, to successfully occupy a country of 44 million people, but it sure is leaving a lot of people dead. That's right, Joy. Uh, lots going on, but in different places, you see different things. I think uh, where Cal is at, here is Lviv. This is where Cal is at. This is that airfield that was struck very close to the Polish border. You're seeing airstrikes out here to the west. Those airstrikes are all about cutting off the supplies because the rest of the strategy is happening out here in the east. Specifically, what we see is here in Kiev. If you looked last week, we were talking about the convoy. Well, the convoy was breaking up, but it was also being reinforced. And so you saw them moving in. You now see them moving down, establishing what we call battle positions. These positions are essentially designed to cut off supplies coming in from the west and ultimately from the south. Bigger picture, though, I think what we're looking at is here in the north. This is the strategy of siege warfare that we saw we've seen in Mariupol, where they were coming in on multiple axes of advance. Here's the thing. The Ukrainian military is doing an amazing job of stopping these armored convoys, but the question is, how long can they do it? And to keep going, you're going to see the Russians try and encircle and ultimately envelop the city here to the south. Those supply lines, they have to stay open. They have to stay here uh, coming into the south so that the Ukrainian military can keep up this fight as long as possible. That brings me back to what's going on in the south. We were talking about where Russia's done better or worse. In the South, their military units have advanced in a big way. But there are two areas really to watch. One of them is Mykolaiv. Mykolaiv is a city where essentially the Russians have pushed their furthest advance in the South and ultimately want to take this bridgehead so they can move towards Moldova. If they can move towards Moldova, they'll cut off the southern half of the country. But they're meeting stiff resistance from the Ukrainian military there. And Cal mentioned Kharkiv, Kharkiv being up in this eastern area right close to the border. Watch the Russians moving forward. This is Zaporizhia, that uh, nuclear plant we were talking about 10 days ago. They are trying to move to Dnipro. From Dnipro, if they can move south from Sumy, they would cut off the whole east of the country, essentially surrounding these Ukrainian forces here. Last note, Joy, see these light blue dots? Those are protests against the Russian occupiers. And there's a lot of resistance in this area. So keep an eye on this. It's still a contested battle space. Even to this day, the Russians have blown past them, but a lot to watch. Let me ask you very quickly a follow-up question, because here we have two mayors who've been abducted, replaced with puppets. If there's still resistance to those, those, those points of occupation, do the Russians have enough troops to fight that occupation protest, the resistance, and advance to Kiev? I think the one spot to watch, Joy, for this is Kherson. Kherson is a city that they essentially took about a week or so ago. But you've seen protesters come right back out into the streets right after it. Separately, the mayor vanished from there replacement. They're talking about an independent state of Kherson. This is a very Russian approach, similar to what we saw in Donbass. But I don't know how they keep this. They actually moved what they would call riot police down to Kherson from Russia. Interesting, though, if there are protests in Russia, there's a lot less riot police to deal with them in Russia. So they're trying to do this occupation force. But I don't know how they would. They can't even control one city very well. I don't know how they would do all of southern Ukraine or even the eastern part of Ukraine at all. Uh, thank you, Clint. I appreciate that. Let me bring in uh, Evgen. I'm going to pronounce your name pro- pro- properly. Klopotenko. I hope that was decent. Yeah. yeah okay. Got good. it. 
Excellent. I want to ask you about this because you're doing, you know, the, 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 the God's work of trying to feed people. You are obviously a master chef, a great chef. But the question I always have when I talk to you and other folks who are really working on trying to feed people who are desperate is where are your supplies coming from at this point? We just saw that map that shows, you know, the Russian military swarming the entire country. Are you still able to get enough supplies in order to do what you're trying to do? Um, you know, like, uh, uh, it's a, I, I even don't know where from supply comes, but, uh, in each city, in each small city in, in Ukraine, there is like a mayors, you know, and, uh, and there is like Minister of Agriculture and the uh, Minister of Inf- Infrastructure, and they are checking the situation every day, every second, and they changing the road, they changing the, the rules, how the supply comes. But uh, what I just know that uh, even from the cities, uh, uh, which are, uh, which are uh, under the, uh, Russia invasion. Uh, people call me and they sending me somehow somehow different uh, different herbs. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how it how it comes. But uh, they just call me and they uh, and I, then I got it. Uh, when I need something, uh, I could have like uh, one day I can have fish from the south of Ukraine. One day I can he- have fish from the west of Ukraine. One day I can fish from the like north of Ukraine. I don't know how it works. Because I'm yeah. not a very expert in that uh, uh, things, but you know, in Ukraine there is a lot of volunteers, and they like uh, uh, their eyes uh, on a fire. And if you need something, just call them. If you need to find a dragon, they will find a dragon in ten minutes. So uh, uh, they're just amazing guys because they have a big experience for the eight years of the war, you know, on the Donbas, and they help for everything. That's why uh, you just need to call them and to say that uh, we need just uh, some food because we can cook and they uh, just can find everything and uh, or maybe just can find something. And uh, we like uh, chefs and we like uh, cooks. We just uh, know how to cook from everything, you know. So yeah. now I can cook uh, everything for you. Let me ask you this question. What is it as your, you know, this is your home. This is your country. What is the yeah. status in terms of the level of hunger and the level of desperation that you're seeing? The people who are coming to you to eat, you know, how long are they going between meals? Uh, I'm, it's a different situation because in Kiev, uh, everything for now, plus minus, more or less, it's stable, you know, so People uh, have two, two times a day have food and they, they don't need more. Um, but uh, in the West Ukraine, it's a, a bit different situation because it's a, a lot of refugees and they are coming like every uh, every day in a huge amount. And it's hard to organize this properly, uh, feeding the people. So they have the pro- they have the food maybe once in three days, uh, once in four days before they were ex- escaping. But now we're trying to feed them at least twice a day. But it's, it depends on the amount of the of the refugees. So there's the problem. But we we're trying to to give them a lot of uh, carbon, you know, a lot of this just the pro- products which gives them a, a, as much energy as uh, we can give give them. So yeah. we're trying not to fill them uh, uh, hungry. Maybe a lot of bread uh, if you can produce. So we're trying to work with it. Yevgen Klopotenko. God bless you. Thank you for all that you're doing um, for your country to try to keep people fed. Cal Perry, Clint Watts, my friends, thank you both very much. We really appreciate all of you. Up next on the readout, U.S. officials say Russia is now asking China for military help. Not a good sign for Putin's military. What is China's role in this war and could they help bring it to an end? Also, the humanitarian crisis in Europe. Nearly three million Ukrainian refugees, millions more displaced within Ukraine. And concern is growing about human trafficking and the possibility of a resurgence of COVID. Plus, 
extreme courage. The dramatic video of a protester interrupting Russian state TV with a message, no war, they're lying to you. That is the Russian disinformation machine machine attracts right-wing grifters and professional trolls in a great big hideous miasma of stupid. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. While both countries are denying it, the U.S. government believes that Russia asked China for military equipment. This could signal that they're struggling to keep their war going, with The New York Times pointing out that there's evidence that Russian missile supplies have been running low. It's becoming increasingly clear that while Russia may not be capable of occupying a country of 44 million people who continue to resist and protest the invasion, Putin may be singularly focused on regime change in Ukraine, no matter the cost. So where does this end? Francis Fukuyama, who you may remember from his famed 1989 essay, The End of History, argues that Russia is heading for an outright defeat in Ukraine and that there's no diplomatic solution to the war prior to this happening. But not everyone agrees. Tom McTage argues in The Atlantic that the question for Russian leaders is how to ensure Putin is defeated while nevertheless providing him with a route out of the crisis, even offering ideas that seem just unthinkable today, that Ukraine could formally renounce its pursuit of NATO membership and promise not to send troops into the Donbass or to seek to retake Crimea. With me now, former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes. I'll work this in reverse. I cannot imagine any world in which um, President Zelensky would, would vow to stay out of NATO and say that Russia can have whatever chunks of its territory they want. That seems like an open invitation for him to just come and take more. But what do you think? No, Joy, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that if you look at what Russia's initial intention was, it was clearly to decapitate the government and replace it with a kind of Russian puppet government, as they've done in some of the other provinces they've occupied in Ukraine and other countries. The problem now is not only Ukrainians resisting, imagine being that puppet government. You're not going to last for a second in Ukraine without Russian occupiers protecting you, essentially serving as your security force. And so you have a situation where the only end is de facto Russian occupation and control. There are scenarios where Russia could offer things less than that, like what you discussed. So, for instance, a combination of Ukraine essentially agreeing not to join NATO, maybe agreeing uh, to Russia's claim on Crimea, maybe agreeing not to meddle in the affairs of these so-called people's republics uh, in the Donbass. But why on earth would President Zelensky do that in this context? Um, you know, The idea of sacrificing some of your sovereignty after you've been assaulted like this seems very unlikely to me, which is why the two sides are, are so profoundly far apart. Let, let, let's move to China, because it, it seems to me that, you know, if you if you if China wants a bipolar world, 
right? Um, in a sense, Russia's defeat would be good for them, if you think about it that way, right? If it's a bipolar world of superpowers and it's us and them, um, they shouldn't really care one way or the other if, if Russia goes down the tubes. On the other hand, they are allied with the Kremlin. What do you think that their incentives look like right now? It's not as if they would like to be cut off from Western markets, from the EU, from the United States, where they make a whole lot of their money. Um, their trade with China, their trade with the EU was $828.1 billion in 2021. It was $755.6 billion in 2021 with us. It's only $146 billion with Russia. Why on earth are they not just turning on Russia with the rest of the world? Well, Joy, it's an interesting calculation they have to make. On the one hand, you're right. They depend much more economically on the relationship with the United States and Europe and the democratic countries that have stood against this invasion. And they don't like the kind of massive instability of the global economy that we're seeing. Frankly, also, they're looking at the sanctions we've imposed on Russia, uh, and I think probably causing some, some concern that those types of sanctions could come their way, for instance, if they make a move on Taiwan. On the other hand, if you ask what might be in their interest, First of all, the disruption in Ukraine, the massive amounts of U.S. and European attention being applied to Russia, that's attention not being applied to China. Once again, the United States has been talking in the Biden administration about focusing more on China, focusing more on the Asia-Pacific. That's much harder when there's a war raging in the center of Europe. Also, Joy, importantly, China is going to be able to backfill some of these sanctions, not all of them that we've imposed. What might that mean for them? A lot of that oil that's coming off the market that used to come to the United States or potentially to Europe, China could be getting that energy at a discount price from Europe or from a Russia that is desperate for buyer. If you look at the technology that has been restricted from going into China, the technology has been restricted from going into Russia, China could backfill that technology as well and make Russia very dependent on Beijing in the future. So what could emerge is, yes, a Russia that is totally hobbled economically, uh, but is really dominated by Chinese leverage. Um, so they do have something to gain from both scenarios. Uh, and thus far, their willingness to break with Russia, we just haven't seen that in recent years. Um, it's more likely they'll try to play a low-key role, not want to be mm -hmm. overly seen to be supporting Russia, but trying to get some of those benefits from backfilling economic sanctions and allowing Russia, frankly, to disrupt the U.S.-led international order. And I mean, to that point, you know, Russia, the Kremlin has talked about seizing uh, the assets of companies like McDonald's and Coca-Cola and also seizing their copyrights, even arresting, um, you know, any of their nationals they can get their hands on. Is this a scenario where China looks at that and says, well, if you seize those copyrights and those assets, it's something that they would go in and literally try to salvage the Russian economy? Is that something you could foresee them doing? They can't possibly make up for the deep structural investments and connections that existed between uh, Russia and the rest of the world that have basically disappeared before our eyes in a matter of weeks because of this war. What they can do is kind of move in uh, and target the areas that are interesting to them. So again, do they want uh, additional sources of energy from Russia on the cheap uh, because they're buying from a, a desperate supplier uh, in Russia? Do they want to maintain technological dominance of, of certain Russian sectors, which, by the way, uh, might leave uh, Russia pretty wired with Chinese technology, something that could give them a lot of insight as well? So I think they're likely to be more opportunistic in where they can take advantage of the war while knowing that there's no way in which they can make Russia whole for the dramatic economic punishment they're facing. And what about this idea of them supplying arms um, to Russia, which does seem to be stalled in their effort? They can't—they're they're failing in this idea that they're going to occupy this country and, 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 you know, perpetrate regime change. 
if China were to come in and help them out and supply them arms, then what? Because that feels like a massive global escalation of this war. Yeah, that would be a much more dramatic step by China. I think just the fact that we're seeing these reports does indicate, as you said, that there's serious supply chain problems with the Russian military. And that's not just backfilling things like missiles. It's backfilling things like food for their troops, uh, fuel for their convoys. Um, and the reality is China, I think, would usually try to stay out of the business of being seen as something of a participant um, in the military back and forth in Ukraine. I think that's something that the Chinese uh, will approach somewhat cautiously. It doesn't mean that they might not play some role, but for them to start really introducing arms into this context, that would be a pretty significant escalation. I think that's why you see the Biden administration making something of a full court press here uh, and reports of pretty senior meetings with Chinese officials kind of delivering the message that that form of escalation would be different qualitatively from just uh, China continuing to try to purchase uh, Russian oil. Ben Rhodes, um, always such great insights. Thank you. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Have a great evening. And coming up, the flood, cheers, the flood of refugees pouring out of Ukraine is raising concerns about the potential exploitation of these vulnerable women and children. What is being done to protect them? That is next on The Readout. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Vladimir Putin is trying to ratchet up his brutal assault on the Ukrainian people by expanding his indiscriminate bombing campaign to the West, targeting Kyiv and Lviv. According to the United Nations, Lviv is hosting about 200,000 internally displaced people, more than a quarter of its normal population. And authorities have expressed concern about the city's capacity to absorb more. Further south and east, a convoy of more than 160 cars were able to flee the besieged city of Mariupol in what appears to be the first successful attempt at safe passage under a humanitarian corridor. Since February 24th, more than 2.8 million refugees have fled to neighboring countries. The majority, 1.7 million, are in Poland. Once there, they struggle to find a place to stay, a place to work and food to eat. According to The Washington Post, citing Ukraine's border guard, the scarcity of those things has prompted up to 220,000 Ukrainians to head back into the battered country. Many of the millions of women and children who have successfully fled are being targeted by human traffickers and others seeking to exploit them. Security forces patrolling the border are doing what they can to protect them. On Thursday, police in Poland detained a man after he allegedly raped a 19-year-old Ukrainian refugee he lured with offers of help. Meanwhile, there's also the ongoing threat of COVID, 
with several European countries, including Germany, Italy, the Netherlands and Austria, seeing their daily COVID infections rise. Joining me now is Osa Regner, Assistant UN Secretary General and Deputy Executive Director of UN Women. Thank you so much for being here. This is a topic that, you know, we've been talking about a lot in our meetings, talking about covering this horrific situation, because this movement, this mil- movement of millions of people is a movement of children and women. Talk about their special vulnerability as displaced people. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, First of all, obviously, uh, these women and children need humanitarian support, which is informed about their specific needs. And that can be pregnant women, elderly women, women with disabilities, etc. Also, especially vulnerable to the situation you describe are Roma women, which many uh, women's organizations uh, pointed out uh, to us. So uh, we need to support the uh, women and children leaving, uh, as you said, through good knowledge and cooperation, uh, both from uh, police in the receiving countries and other authorities, uh, as well as, of course, support from uh, UN humanitarian agencies and UNHCR to be aware of the situation uh, and in also to support women with uh, obviously, both the, the immediate support when they arrive, such as uh, shelter and, and a place where they can stay, but also very quickly support for livelihood, orientation on education and any measure that makes them less vulnerable to uh, bad uh, offers of, 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 of false support. Uh, so there is a range of uh, um, uh, interventions that needs to be taken from uh, everybody who comes in contact with these uh, help-seeking refugees. Just looking at the countries where where people are going, Poland uh, has taken the majority, as we mentioned. Um, Hungary has taken 255,000. Other European countries, something like 300,000. It's just sort of, you know, it just sort of scales down from there. Are there countries that have more infrastructure to take in women and find them, as you said, safe places to stay? I mean, even, you know, homeless women being in a shelter is not safe because you're just especially vulnerable to exploitation and violence. You know, having, you know, you, you ran out of your home. Do you have such things as, you know, the things for your san- do you have sanitary napkins with you to be blunt do you have the things that you need as a girl or as a woman those things are just so basic and people don't necessarily think about it are there countries that are doing a better job of securing and assisting women and children well yeah no, you're absolutely right and it's a big task for the un to be aware any humanitarian support that the un gives regardless of where people are, should be informed about women's and girls' particular needs and also provide uh, kids with the support that you mentioned. Uh, And that's part of the basic response that the UN uh, should uh, uh, provide. Uh, We know that Poland was well prepared uh, and, and has, as you said, received uh, a lot of people. However, the numbers are growing and it's getting uh, increasingly difficult, I think, for all the countries to provide quality care in, in relation to the refugees. Uh, so, um, we uh, also, if you have a, an EU country with a pretty well working uh, infrastructure, social infrastructure, and, and uh, a, a society and, and governmental institutions that work, obviously it is easier 
But at the same time, uh, we know that you also all the time have to involve women's organizations, for example. You have to be in touch, uh, and we are, with the women's organizations in Ukraine and in the receiving countries to understand well what the women uh, actually need and try to, to support that. And uh, we know that there have been past uh, mass exoduses. 6.6 million um, people were forced to flee Syria uh, since 2011. Another 6.7 million remain internally displaced. Rwanda, as everyone can recall, in the 1990s, there were more than 300,000 Hutu refugees, more than 500,000 Tutsi refugees, um, 350,000 Rwandans internally displaced. And obviously the wars in Yugoslavia in the 90s through the early 2000s, 2.4 million others. I wonder if there's a, a, a sort of a way that the U.N. can think about the very different kinds of people that are leaving. You do have African refugees who are not only fleeing a war, but are far from home. You have people from India, from other countries that are also. How how much more complicated is that, trying to find safe places for people to stay who are fleeing Ukraine, but are not even necessarily originally from Ukraine? Well, I, it's, uh, I think that in, in the case of Ukraine, the neighboring countries uh, have a, an infrastructure which you might not have, in, for example, in the Sahel region uh, in Africa or uh, in the case of Afghanistan, etc. Uh, at the same time, the numbers are very big of people seeking help and needing help. Uh, and that is uh, that constitutes, uh, of course, a challenge every day. The UN, uh, I would say, has a lot of experience uh, uh, with these situations and uh, also to pay attention to women's specific needs. So that's part of the basic requirements for us. And it's also part of our requirements that we should be informed by women's organizations. And we often set up uh, uh, advisory boards from a women's organization in the immediate situations to be in, as informed as possible about women's needs and, and how, to, uh, how to go about the situation and, in the best way. Well, we are glad that you are there. Uh, Osa Regner, uh, thank you so much for being here uh, this evening. And that is uh, great information. We really appreciate you. And up next, the Kremlin's disinformation campaign kicks into high gear with the help of America's right wing and a certain Fox News host who's leading the charge. You can guess who that is. Should I just pretend to be shocked? Shocked. We'll be right back. Today in Moscow, an anti-war protester interrupted the main news program on the Kremlin's flagship TV channel, running out behind the news anchor and holding up a sign with slogans denouncing the war in Ukraine. Как смягчить воздействие западных санкций, говорил сегодня Михаил Мишустин. На встрече со своим белорусским коллегой российский премьер подчеркнул, надо усилить сотрудничество в рамках союзного государства, а на совещании в правительстве обсуждали, как сохранить... In case you couldn't catch it, those slogans say no to war, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda. You're being lied to here, Russians against the war. That very brave woman worked for that state-run media channel. Here she is in a video where she appeared to have recorded a message before her on-air protest. According to the Russian news agency TASS, she has been detained. That astounding scene of real courage comes as Russia's disinformation campaign sinks its teeth into the U.S., from lies that justify the Russian invasion to baseless claims about secret American biological warfare labs in Ukraine. Putin depends on right-wing trolls here in our country to wage his disinformation war. And sure enough, the usual suspects are ambling right on up to the Kremlin's claims. 
like the former president's son, who tweeted the lie that conspiracy theories around uh, that the conspiracy theories around the labs were proven to be a fact, while another professional grifter troll waxed nonsense about how Americans treat Russian people and even suggested Americans read Putin's war declaration speech for the real story. Her tweet, capped off with the trolley hashtag Russian Lives Matter, was retweeted by the Russian embassy in the United States. A bombshell report by Mother Jones, still unconfirmed by NBC News, also reveals just how useful and dangerous a useful idiot can be. David Korn reports that the Kremlin sent out talking points to state-friendly media outlets with a request to use more of Tucker Carlson of Fox News. The 12-page document is written in Russian and describes Tucker as a popular news host who sharply criticizes the actions of the United States and NATO. It sums up Carlson's position as, quote, Russia is only protecting its interest and security. The memo also includes a quote from Carlson, quote, and how would the U.S. behave if such a situation developed in neighboring Mexico or Canada? Fox News has not responded to this reporting. Up next, David Korn, the author of that report, joins me with more on these leaked Kremlin memos alongside Malcolm Nance, and we will discuss how to fight the disinformation. Stay with us. The Kremlin views Tucker Carlson's commentary as, quote, essential in its wartime messaging strategy. That is according to a leaked 12-page memo from a Russian government agency to the Russian media obtained by Mother Jones. Here's a little taste of what the Kremlin deems as must-see TV. Democrats in Washington have told you you have a patriotic duty to hate Vladimir Putin. It's not a suggestion, it's a mandate. Because the target is Russia, very few Americans have noticed any of this. They support it. The point here is to defend democracy. Not that Ukraine is a democracy, it is not a democracy. It might be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? With me now is David Korn, Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones and author of this This Land newsletter and Malcolm Nance, MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst and author of the upcoming book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Militias, Terrorists and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. Uh, this is the gang's back together again. It is yeah, good to see you, uh, David, in great person. Great to be here. Talk about this memo, what it say, and why is it that the Kremlin seems to love Tuckum so much? Well, it's important to note that there's no independent media left in Russia to begin with. They all skedaddle. They were shut down. It's a you, you can be punished, put in prison for up to 15 years if you report that there is a war right. or that they're shelling civilians or the Russian army is having a difficult time. So there's no real media. The only people who are there left are pro-Putin media. And they've been getting these memos from this Russian information agency, you know, it's called a recommendation. That's what it says, you mm -hmm. know, if you translate it literally. We don't know if it's a recommendation or an instruction or an order. But the one that, that, that I got my hands on from someone who worked at a Russian media outlet, you know, says it is essential to use Tucker Carlson as much as possible. And I have to say, in the whole 12-page memo, and I have another one that's 12 pages from a different day that mentions Tucker as well, mm -hmm. there is no other Western or American journalist mentioned. He is the only one. And they say, use him because he's saying that the U.S. and NATO, they're the ones who unleashed this conflict. Because he's blaming Biden mm -hmm. and NATO for this, they want, the Russians want to use him. And we see that on RT and other Russian media outlets. They've used him. They've even used him recently for this uh bogus allegation that there are bioweapon labs mm -hmm. in Ukraine, and that's what this is all about, because he was on TV talking about it. So this is just standard 
disinformation yeah. tactics. If you can use someone from the other side making your point, particularly if your point is a lie, right. it's great. And so they have just latched onto him. And we saw it even before the memo. We see the memo now makes it kind of official. Mm-hmm. And they, they're, you know, they're, they're getting their money's worth, if you saw from just the clips you played. And Malcolm, let me bring you in here, because there are lesser idiots involved as well. I mean, useful idiots as well. You've got the, <laughs> the, 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 the I don't remember her name, the black lady that Kanye West elevated for no good reason, saying you should really get your information from Putin's speech. You've got Tulsi Gabbard, who's a member of the United States military, just directly parroting the talking points. You've got Laura Ingraham. You, you do have this sort of parade of, of MAGA world that are right. parroting Russian talking points. It is shocking, I think, to hear it coming out of American mouths. Is the Kremlin writing this? How does this, what do you think of it all? You know, the interesting thing about history is you, every once in a while, you get to see it come back again. You know, when I was young, we would hear about Tokyo Rose, uh, the American collaborator who was making radio transmissions in Japan to demoralize American uh, servicemen, or Lord Haw Haw, who did the same thing for the Nazis in World War II. Um, I never thought that these people didn't believe what they were saying. They always were very clear that they they believed in Nazism, they believed in the Imperial Japan uh, strategy. Tucker Carlson, Candace Owens, Tulsi Gabbard, I think somewhere along the line, they don't believe this, but they think that it's in their interest to say these things. For Tucker Carlson, it's pretty clear. He is MAGA world. And anything that, you know, that helps Donald Trump out, whether it means turning against the United States, collaborating with another country's propaganda machine, so long as it gets him the adoration of MAGA world, he will do it. I don't know if he really loves Vladimir Putin, but I have to do, I have to clarify one thing, Joy. These people are not useful idiots. They are beyond useful idiots. Useful idiots don't know as a term of art in the intelligence world. They don't really know what they're doing. They're just stupid. These people are almost collaborators to a certain extent. They do know what they're doing. I would call them an asset, especially Tucker Carlson. Uh, and, and Tulsi Gabbard, she's just a moron. But for these people to come up there, we are now seeing a term that I never thought I'd see in my life. Fifth columnist, people who are deliberately working to undermine the American structure. And, you know, David, the one, you know, I, far from me forever to, to disagree with my friend Malcolm Nance. I mean, the difference is Tokyo Rose, you know, ultimately was cleared because she was trying to sort of make the people that she was doing these broadcasts for believe that she didn't believe in the United States and that she was on the side of Imperial Japan. It turned out she was making her broadcast yeah. deliberately goofy in order yeah. to undermine it. In the case of Tucker Carlson, it seems like he's deliberately making it more and more and more overtly propagandistic, overtly pro-Putin. Is there any Anything in those memos that indicates that there's any there's anything that they're giving to these people? Is there no, I mean, is there something exchanging hands here, I mean, or are they doing they it for free? Be, there's nothing that exchanges hands. And I've thought about this too. Not you mm-hmm. know you know Tucker Tucker has his opinions. He's free to have them and to share them. And maybe they even line up with the opinions of Vladimir Putin and, and, and Russian propagandists. But I have to say this: If I was being cited in memos like this by a barbaric regime that's killing civilians, I would say, "Hey, leave me out of it." I would say, you know, we made it. I may agree that this is America's fault. I may agree that you know that you have a right to do this, but that's my honest opinion. But I don't want to be brought in 
by your disinformation and propagandist tactics. So he hasn't done that. And in fact, he's done everything to make him make himself of tremendous use. So even the other day, when Victoria Nuland, a secretary of state official, testified that there are bio labs in Ukraine and we're worried about the materials, you know, not that there were bioweapon labs or that there are U.S. labs. He was out there saying, see, the Russian disinformation is right. Right. And so that's going over the line because also he's not a report on the ground. He doesn't know what's true or not. Yeah. He took her testimony and he warped it exactly in keeping with what the Russians want to be said. Yeah. And so he has the right to say what he wants to say. I'll defend that, even if he's wrong. But if he's being used this way, you also have the obligation to say, hey, I'm yeah. not part of that team. Take us into spy world for a moment, um, Malcolm. What would Russia, mm -hmm. you know, do with such assets? Because they've got them. Well, I mean, they're doing what they're doing, which is the amplification of disinformation that is now validated by a journalist. And I throw that in big quotes. <laughs> Even uh, his bosses don't say he's a journalist. You take him to court, they <laughs> say know, don't believe anything he know, says. That's dumb. But this we are literally in a cycle of Soviet disinformation from the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. I just can't believe it. This is stuff I read in history books about propaganda and disinformation warfare is carried out by the Soviet Union. We are in Pravda country where every word out of Russia was a lie. Yeah. These people are first, as we used to call them, useful idiots, but then they've now bumped up to where they want to amplify Russia's message. They need to damage the United States. I, too, defend Tucker Carlson's right to say any stupid thing he wants because he's a moron. But that does not give him the right to create a, a, a disinformation bubble around the truth in order to magnify a potential enemy who is actually killing people, a dictatorship, yeah. for him to do that. That's, that's just turned, shameful. They've turned against the, the, the West and in favor of Putin. Unbelievable. David Korn, Malcolm Nance, thank you guys. Uh, next, uh, that is the readout tonight. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.